The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. As I mentioned a few weeks ago when I last preached, uh, my summer schedule is a little bit erratic, and so I'm sort of on and off the pulpit a lot. And so instead of going into Luke series that we've been on for a few years or even getting into anything else, uh, I'm kind of preaching on some variety of topics uh, that are a little more topical rather than um, text-based, okay? And so last time I spoke, we looked at Gideon's calling and looked at this whole idea of a new name and a new identity, a new calling that God wants to give us. Well, this morning I want to talk about what I'm calling true friendship as the way that the Bible outlines it. And I want to begin discussing this by simply asking you this question is, when is the last time you've made a friend? Would you just pause for a moment and ask yourself that? Now, I'm not talking about casual acquaintances here. I'm not talking about people that you've met at work or in your neighborhood, or even here at ICC, or in maybe even another church that you just sort of say hi to them whenever you're in that context, but the truth is you don't really see them outside of that particular situation. I'm talking about a real friend. I'm talking about someone that you've poured your heart out to, someone with whom you've shared your secrets with, someone who's been there through a really difficult time, to hold your hand and walk with you through a really tough situation when nobody else was there. I can, can I ask you, in the last decade of your life, have you met a, friend, met a friend like this? Because when I talk with a lot of adults, I think the truth is they would say no. It, I'd have to go back to college or maybe even high school to think about the last time I actually made a friend like that. But in my adult life, it's been all just a steady stream of casual acquaintances. I think that underscores how hard friendship is, isn't it? Especially in adulthood. I also want to ask you this question is, do you ever struggle with loneliness? I think the truth is, almost all of us do at one time or another. Uh, But the truth is, That's just too shameful for any of us to admit. Um, I've shared these two quotes that I'm going to share in a minute with you before when I preached out of Ecclesiastes, but I think it's really relevant to what I want to share today, and so I want to share it again today. This lady, Marla Paul, was an accomplished journalist uh, who became a wife, a mother, uh, pretty much looked like she had everything in life, and yet she wrote this article in the Chicago Tribune that really garnered so much attention at the time it was published because she confessed of her shame of loneliness in her adult life. She writes, the loneliness saddens me. How did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? It seems as if every woman's friendship quota has been filled and she is no longer accepting new applicants. I think there are women out there who don't know how lonely they are. It's easy enough to fill up the day with work and family. But no matter how much I enjoy my job and love my husband and child, they are not enough. 
I recently read my daughter Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling. I felt immediate kinship with this bird who flies from place to place, looking for the creatures with whom he belongs. He eventually finds them. I hope I do too. Lee Strobel writes a similar confession. Okay, I'll admit it. There have been times in my life when I've been profoundly lonely. Despite a flourishing career, lots of good acquaintances, and a fulfilling marriage, I've slogged through areas where I've ached for a friend to whom I could bear my soul. I can personally attest to the biblical truth that human beings were not designed to live relationally disconnected lives. As outrageous as it may sound, we will never feel whole until we experience community, first with God and then with other people. Without that, we will inevitably sense something deeply awry in the depths of our soul. What I find particularly interesting about both uh, Lee Strobel and Marla Paul's confession about their loneliness is that they highlight the fact that they had successful careers and had fulfilling marriages with a wife or a husband and children, and yet there was still an emptiness a loneliness that was not filled, and it was because of the lack of friends. I think that dynamic between marriage and friendship is really important. It's very interesting. Is um, When you get married, what typically happens in those first few years of marriage is that your spouse, your partner, meets all of your needs for intimacy and companionship, Right? You don't need to go anywhere. Your best friend is right there at your side. So you do everything together. And then kids come into the picture, and it cocoons you even further in this bubble, doesn't it? Because now it's about coming home from work, getting the kids fed. It's about washing them, bathing them, then putting them to bed and doing the good night routine. And you do that for enough years And pretty much, you've abandoned all your friendships, haven't you? Your friends don't even call you anymore because they know you get angry because you just woke up the kids or something like that, right? Um, And so it's not uncommon to find yourself some years into married life and thinking, I don't have any friends anymore. I've lost them all compared to my single years. And what I've discovered in my years of marital counseling is This often becomes like a vicious cycle, a spiraling down, because as that married couple isolates themselves even further, losing their friendships with others, then what happens is you put this inordinate burden on your spouse to meet all of your emotional and relational needs, right? And now suddenly that person feels the weight of that, the burden of that, and says it's too much, it's an unreasonable demand on me. And what I'm saying is, even in the healthiest marriages, there needs to be healthy friendships for both husband and wife that extend beyond the marriage. Another thing we see in our day is this high mobility of society. People in our days rarely put down roots in one place for very long. All of us are changing jobs, changing neighborhoods, even changing churches. So in light of all of that change that we're experiencing, 
It's not surprising that it's very hard to develop deep friendships with people when the circles that we swim in are changing constantly. As I think about my own situation, my closest friends are scattered all over the place. Got one in Philly, got one in Los Angeles. Now I've got one in Hong Kong. It's crazy just to try to keep up these relationships that mean the most to us. But going deeper than the pressure of marriage or the struggle to plant roots in a particular community, I think what the Bible tells us is that the biggest challenge to deep friendship is our own sin and self-centeredness. In this last decade, we've seen the rise of social media that has dramatically increased our ability to stay connected with one another. Through services like Facebook, I think all of us have experienced that, haven't we, where we've gotten connected with long-lost friends from college and high school that you thought you'd never talk with again. And now suddenly you know what they ate for dinner last night because they posted a picture of it, right? We've gotten to know through social media way more than we could have ever imagined about what's going on in each other's lives. But here's the deeper question. Has it led to any more meaningful connectedness and community with one another? There's been an interesting slew of studies that have been published in the last decade as scientists have been trying to figure this out, the impact of social media on our lives. And to the surprise of many, what we're learning is that the more that people engross themselves in social media, paradoxically, the lonelier, unhappier, and dissatisfied people are with their lives. Instead of feeling more whole, more fulfilled by all of this online socializing, what we're discovering is people feel emptier. Researchers have begun to use terms like Facebook jealousy and Facebook depression. The result of seeing these endless posts of your friends eating amazing food and vacationing at amazing destinations, and raising amazing children, right? It's horrible. (laughs) Comedian Ben Glebe confesses his own struggle with social media and what it's revealed about his own issues in a humorous way as he writes, I'm addicted to Instagram. If you don't know what Instagram is, it's an app you get on your phone where you take pictures of things and then you add a filter to it so you look like a much better photographer than you are. You upload it and it makes you feel good about you because people actually click like. You know that you did not do that, but still you're having a bad day. Look at your phone. Oh, there are new three new likes. Everything's fine. All I do now is try to find beauty in the world. Never saw beauty anywhere, but now I can get likes on it. So all I do is try to convert beauty into likes. How can I make that sunset about me? How can I take that beautiful sunset and get compliments about me for it? Hey, Ben, beautiful sunset. Thank you very much. I did that. I did that sunset. (laughs) Converting beauty into likes. I love that. That summarizes social media, basically, doesn't it? As Glebe confesses, there's this fundamental self-centeredness in all of us that undermines the very community that we all hunger for. 
Because the truth is, we all try to make it about us, don't we? How can friendships benefit me? How can I leverage that for my glory, for my sense of fulfillment? And this spirit is absolutely destructive to our ability to experience true friendship, as the Bible outlines it. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom regarding friendship. And it has a lot to say about the connection between our character and our friendship. Proverbs 12, 16 says, A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man does foolish things, and a crafty man is hated. Proverbs 17, 9, He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Proverbs 25, verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You see what Proverbs is trying to tell us? Whether it's intolerance of others or a quick temper or a sneaky demeanor that's always working the angles to your advantage, whether it's a total self-absorption that makes you tone-deaf to the situation at hand and the needs of your friends. All of these character issues, character flaws, have the power to undermine and destroy friendship. And so I think the starting place is simply to ask ourselves, what do your friendships, or maybe lack thereof, reveal about your character? I think it's interesting when you think about how any one person measures their sense of progress in life. There's a lot of things you can point to, like how far you've gotten in career success, what suburb you live in, how many square feet your home is, what kind of car you drive, what's your net worth, your 401k. There's a lot of things that we can look at, what schools your children are going to. But I think what the Bible would suggest is, do you really want to know the measure of a person? Do you really want to know your level of maturity and progress in life? And I think the Bible says, look at your relationships. Look at your friendships, the people in your life, and the effect that you have on them and the way that they are affecting you. In other words, it's so easy to look at your struggling friendships and point at others and say, well, they did did that to me. Or to look at circumstances. Well, we just moved around so much. We just never really settled down anywhere. But I think what the Bible is inviting us to do, what God is inviting us to do is look inwardly at your own heart. And what do your friendships reveal about your character, about the kind of person that you are on the inside? As I look through the teaching of Proverbs, two essential qualities of friendship seem to emerge to me. The first is this. True friendship is marked by commitment through difficult circumstances. True friendship is marked by commitment through difficult circumstances. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think what Proverbs is saying is this. 
The truth is that we maintain most relationships in our life because they are useful to us. They're useful to us. Maybe it's a coworker or even a boss who can help us advance in our careers. Maybe it's a friend who works for a particular company and gets us great deals on that stuff we love. Maybe it's just a companion to go shopping with or to watch bulls or bears games with together. In other words, there's something in it for both of you, isn't there, that makes the relationship worthwhile. But what these verses in Proverbs suggest is that we all need at least a couple friends who can go much deeper than that, who are going to be there when everyone else is gone and too preoccupied living their own lives to care about you. And I want to ask, do you have friends that fit that description? Who are going to be there for you in your greatest moment of need? Who aren't going to bail on you when they realize what it's going to cost to be a friend to you? Or maybe even put a better way, are you that friend to anyone else? I remember during a particularly difficult season in my life, I leaned on one of these close friends of mine. I called him up, and I think we spoke for like three, four hours the first time we talked about it, and I just dumped on him, you know? Usually our phone calls are like, you know, we almost like have a little chess game timer or something going like, you know, I share a little about me, then you share a little about you. This time I was greedy, and I just unloaded without filters what I was going through, all my anger, all my anxieties, all my doubts, all my frustrations. And after that long phone conversation, he prayed for me. And after I got off the phone with them, I felt so embarrassed. I hated that feeling of neediness. And I thought for sure, I'm not going to hear from him for another six months. He's probably thinking like, I'm going to let that storm pass in Steve's life. And then when he's okay again, I'll call him up again. But I was shocked because within a week he called me again and said, you know, I was really disturbed by the stuff you were sharing last time. And I just wanted to know how you're doing. And he listened for another couple hours <laughs> to chapter two of the story as I unleashed on him again. And he just prayed again for me over the phone and called me again and again, saying, how's it going, brother? How's it going? To tell you, having him there for me in that moment helped me so much. I want to tell you this. Commitment and sacrifice like that is incredibly costly, isn't it? That's why it's only possible to have a couple friends like that in your life. None of us have the bandwidth to fill our lives in that kind of friendship. But hopefully, there are at least a few people in your life to whom you can be that kind of friend. Jasmine Holmes says, friendship doesn't always come easily. Sometimes it's hard fought and sacrificial. The deepest relationships in our lives take effort and sacrifice. Though friendship does start with some level of commonality, as growth occurs, the glue that binds a friendship is made more of love and loyalty than simply similar interests. The second mark of true friendship is loving truthfulness. Loving truthfulness. Proverbs 27, verse 5 to 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. 
Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Here is the truth about all of us. None of us sees ourselves as clearly and objectively as we think we do, do we? Right? That's the lie that all of us believe about ourselves, right? Do you understand that? We all suffer from the self-blindness. Our ability to change and to grow is severely limited by our lack of self-awareness and the distorted perspective that we all feed ourselves on. And so in order to truly change and grow, we have to be confronted by some very difficult and painful truths about ourselves. But here is the problem. Here is the challenge is finding someone willing to go there with us and say those difficult truths to our face. Because the truth is, more often than not, we all chicken out when it comes to speaking difficult truths that others need to hear, don't we? And we all claim that it's out of love that we don't want to say those things to people and we keep silent. But here's the question is, who are we really loving when we really refuse to tell someone a truth that they need to hear? What we're really saying in that silence is, I love myself too much to share something that uncomfortable with you, even if it may help you. You see, when you keep silent with the truth that somebody needs to hear, who you're really loving is yourself. I'm not going to risk that. I don't want that guy to think that badly of me, so I'm not going to say it. Let somebody else do the dirty work and confront them. An enemy multiplies kisses. But a true friend is one who is willing to risk your anger and misunderstanding to tell you the things that you really need to hear. I, I shared this briefly before, but when I was in college, a friend confronted me with the way that I was treating my older brother, Dave. This is us in college. I have to preface every time I show this picture that I am a little taller than him, but every time we've ever taken a picture, he always went on his tippy toes so he could look like he's taller than me, all right? So that's the truth. He preached here a couple weeks ago. You saw it. He's a, little, he's a half inch shorter than me. All right. Um, this friend of mine in college pulled me aside one day, and he said, uh, I've been watching the way you interact with your brother. And he said to me, you know what I observe is you're actually a pretty bad younger brother. Like, you are like really nasty and disrespectful to him. And I think what it's revealing is a lot of pride in your heart. I have to be honest. In that moment, I did not respond very graciously <laughs> to what he said. I told him this pretty indignantly. You don't know the first thing about my relationship with my brother. How long have you known me? Like a year? And you have the gall to say that to me? Like, I've known my brother my whole life. We have this thing, he and I. We're brothers. So it's fine. It's no problem. But over the next several days, I couldn't get the things he said to me out of my head. And I couldn't avoid the painful truth of what he had shared with me. Because as Dave and I were growing up, the truth is, 
And most of the things that we did, I ended up beating him in, okay? Whether it was academics or sports or even art school, art classes we took together, I was always just a little better than him in most of these things. And the truth is, I realized I actually teased him a lot with my dominance over him. And in my head, I began to replay all of these scenes from our childhood. And particularly the one that stood out was tennis. We played tennis together almost every day in the summer, and I beat him almost 100% of the time. And on that tennis court, I would mock him mercilessly about the fact that I was a better tennis player than he was. But here was the thing. I told myself this was all just in fun, brothers having fun. But the truth was there was a darker side to that constant humiliation that I inflicted on my brother. The problem was my brother is actually too kind and too humble to actually call me out on it. So he never did. He'd always just laugh it off as a, as a gentle older brother and never said, you, <laughs> you know. And so it took a friend who was willing to risk our relationship and love me enough to tell me this painful truth about myself. And I want to ask you this. Do you have any friends in your life who love you enough to tell you the difficult things that no one else will say to you? Are you that friend to others? This is, to me, so essential to the sanctification of our church, to our growing maturity as a community. I constantly struggle with the limitations of pastoral counseling because when you show up in my office door with a problem that you want help on as your pastor, as your shepherd, the problem is, the limitation is, I only know what you report to me. You know that? So you can tell me whatever story you want and I have to just take it at face value. Your husband is that bad? I sympathize with you. Bring him in and I'll yell at him for you. you know? Maybe you're the problem in the marriage, but who knows because I'm only hearing it from your perspective. But that's the power of a friend, isn't it? That friend is actually with you. That friend actually sees how you talk to your spouse. That friend sees how you treat your children, the kind of things you say when you let your guard down and your pastor isn't watching you. And your friend can say things to you that not even your pastor can say to you. And I wonder, do you have a friend like that in your life who can tell you the difficult things that you need to hear that nobody else is going to have the guts or the courage or the love and concern enough to say to you? And the question, flipping it around, is are you that friend to others? Now, I want to say this. Maybe some of you are feeling the weight of this teaching. Maybe the conclusion you're coming to as I wrap up this message is, oh, well, looks like I'm not going to have any true friendships in my life. Um, there are worse things in life than kisses of an enemy. <laughs> uh, where is the hope? Where is the hope in all of the hope lies in the truth that Jesus is this kind of friend to us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 to 17 says, In my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. 
May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Paul is sharing about an exceptionally painful time in his life when all of his friends abandoned him. And he was all alone in his greatest moment of need. But rather than becoming bitter or angry toward his friends, he extends mercy and love to them. How was he able to respond with such grace when his friends had failed him? Because, he says, Jesus was there for me. His friendship with Jesus gave him strength. At the beginning of the message, I stated that one of the biggest challenges to true friendship is our self-centered neediness that drives us to use people to our own advantage. But when we realize that Jesus is always with us to help us in our moment of need, that divine love frees us to serve others and love them, even when they fail us. Why wouldn't we become so devastated when our friends disappoint us? Because our ultimate hope lies not in their performance, but in God's faithfulness to us. I also pointed out in the beginning of the message how our friendships are often hindered by the flaws in our character. But as we experience more and more the Spirit's power and work in our lives, that power transforms us to make us more like Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is such a strong relational component to each of these fruit of the Spirit. In other words, what I'm saying is through the transformation that we experience in Christ, we become the kind of people capable of having deep and fulfilling friendships. In other words, God has to first do a work in our hearts before our relationships with others can change. We all want these true friends, don't we? that are going to stick with us in our darkest times and speak loving truth to us. But what the Bible is saying is, without this inner change in us, the truth is when we only want those kind of friends to come and help us, we're still stuck in the using mode, selfish using mode. It's just that we set the bar higher than just watching a Bears game together, right? Now we're saying, I want you there to be on the phone for four hours for me so I can bear my soul to you. God wants to bring these true friendships into our lives by transforming us into the kind of people that can be this kind of true friend to others. In other words, through his unconditional love, he gives us the security we need to be able to take risks and be generous in our relationship with others. Because God loves me, he meets me, at my deepest need. And out of that foundation of his love for me, I have the resources and the power to love others, to be generous and sacrificial and giving. The last thing I say as I wrap up here is I want to invite us to consider starting with ICC as the place to look for these deeper friends. C.S. Lewis writes this, we think we have chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference in the date of our birth, a few more miles between certain houses, 
the choice of one university instead of another. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, You have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. What Lewis is saying is this. When he calls us to be a church together, that is not random. It is not a happy accident that we're brought together under one roof. What he is saying is that under God's sovereign plan, he has brought us together to be in friendship with one another. And it is only when we embrace his plan for us to become this kind of friend to one another that we can experience the fullness of why we all worship under one roof as one church like this. And so I want you to consider that. Maybe the truth is you've been a part of ICC, but you're just sort of floating there, gliding through superficial relationships. And maybe the truth is this. When you think about this picture of friendship, there's a side in you that honestly wonders, I don't know if I want that. I kind of like my life a little cleaner without strings attached. I'm okay with superficiality. It's good enough for me. But what God is saying is you're robbing yourself of so much of the riches of what the Christian life was intended to be through this gift of friendships that he wants to give to you. Let's pray. As we close our service with some songs of response and a time of prayer, I just want to invite you to reflect on what I asked you at the beginning of this message. How are your friendships? And what do they tell you about your character, your maturity, your life? I wonder if maybe um, some of you find yourself in that place of loneliness. You are married, you have kids. That's all great. Career is going fine. But if you really look deep into your heart, you're beginning to realize, I got a lot of superficial companions. I've got a lot of acquaintances. I got a lot of guys that I can call up if I want a barbecue or catch a sporting event together or work out at the gym together. I got a lot of those people in my life. But maybe through this message, what God is trying to get you to a place of understanding is, do you have that person that's going to be there when the house is crumbling and your life is falling apart? Do you have that friend that's going to look you right in the eyes and say, you know, sister, you need to hear this because no one else is willing to say this to you. And you're just blind to this. And I love you too much to watch you keep going like this. And again, like I say, it's so easy to blame other people. Well, yeah, I would love a friend like that, but no one wants to be my friend. Or maybe you blame it on circumstances. Life just hasn't played out like that for me. But I think there is a place of ownership and surrender in which you can say, maybe it's me. 
Maybe the truth is I push people away. Maybe the truth is no one wants to be that friend to me because I don't want to be that friend to them. Maybe I just want to glide through life in superficiality. Maybe what God is saying is, I want so much more for your life than that. I want to teach you the riches of the community that I can offer to you through my love for you and for one another. And maybe what God is asking of you this day is simply a step of faith that is willing to risk and surrender and embrace the invitation of God to know a life like that of deep, rich, fulfilling, sacrificial, generous friendships. Really sharing your life with a handful of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to help you along this difficult and broken journey to make it to the end of this race. I believe that that is what God desires for you. And maybe as you look in your own heart, you see this deep neediness that causes you to undermine relationships in your life. What God is saying is, you need to drink from this spring of living water that I offer to you so that out of the riches of my ministry to you, my love toward you, You will have a place from which you can love others in the way that I desire. We just pray that for a few minutes and then we're going to respond in some songs of response as we close out our worship.